As OD practitioners, we are increasingly having to facilitate and solve complex adaptive challenges that require much greater skill and capability of the practitioner than solving technical challenges alone. The trouble is, few practitioners have been adequately trained on how to do this well. Consequently, what happens in many cases is that the wrong people are often engaged in solving the problem, the wrong tools are employed to spur dialogue, and the wrong conversations are initiated, resulting in identifying ineffective interventions that either only partially solve the problem or make matters worse. As a profession, as OD practitioners, we can and must do better. To be effective in solving complex adaptive challenges, it requires a different set of knowledge, skills, and capabilities. Hence, in today's episode, I want to break down three must-have skills that will increase your ability to effectively solve your clients' or employers' most intractable challenges. My hope is, is that in learning such skills, you will not only be better equipped to solve complex adaptive challenges, but also possess the requisite confidence when doing so. So if you're ready, let's begin. Welcome to another episode of All Things OD, where I'm here to help you offer more, be more, and live more. Whether you're serving as an OD practitioner, change management professional, or business transformation consultant. I'm your host, Randall Scott, and it's great to be with you here today. As mentioned in today's episode, we're going to learn about three must-have OD practitioner skills to increase your effectiveness with solving complex adaptive challenges. We're going to learn why such skills are necessary to be effective in solving complex challenges. And lastly, we're going to learn how possessing such skills can elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. Now, before we begin, I want to offer you a free resource that complements our discussion today, and that is a free workshop on the 10 strategies to elevate, revitalize, and transform your career. If you feel your career is stuck or has stagnated in any way, or feel the urgency to develop new knowledge, skills, capabilities, or you are simply looking to offer more, be more, and live more, then this workshop is for you. You can access the free workshop at henosispartners.com workshop, or if you're watching on YouTube, you can click on the link in the description below. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. So the first must-have skill as an OD practitioner is to become a master architect with designing innovation sequences, aka dialogic-based events. And there are several elements that comprise a well-formed innovation sequence, the first of which is to consider the end state. We begin with the end in mind, a clear vision of your intended direction of travel, of what better looks like on the back end of your dialogic-based event. And the end state could reflect resolving a conflict, helping a team vision the future, helping a team re-engineer a process or exploit an emerging opportunity. 
Once we're clear on what the end state should look like or what we desire, then we consider the key movements that make up the dialogic-based event itself. And there are three primary movements that we need to consider. There are diverge movements where people and ideas are moving apart. There are converge movements where people and ideas are moving together. And then there are emerge movements, which represents the space in between diverge and converge. As an aside, there's a good book by Bella Banathy called Designing Social Systems in a Changing World that provides a really good overview on these types of movements. Another element of a well-formed innovation sequence is to consider the diagnostic, dialogic, and learning journey tools and tactics that you will employ before, during, and after your dialogic event. So for example, prior to your dialogic-based event, you may consider a number of dialogue interviews to understand people's perspectives and points of view. You may consider harvesting stories or different narratives that reflect the current state. You may conduct surveys or focus groups. You may engage in some desk research or conduct some assessments, or you might initiate a benchmarking study. During the dialogic event, you need to consider which dialogic tools that you're going to make use of. And there are a number of tools to choose from, such as the World Cafe, use of open space technology, the circle method, appreciative inquiry, future search, the conference model, and many, many others. We make use of these dialogic tools to both spur and drive specific strategic conversations. And lastly, you may want to employ certain learning journey tactics, either during your event or even after the event, such as empathy walks, conducting site or field trips into the system, conducting a cultural immersion journey, employing self-journaling practices, initiating an action research study, or having the cohort participate in a vision quest. So all of these learning journey tactics can help you realize the end state that you're looking for. Another element that makes for a well-formed innovation sequence is to consider the different forms of connectivity. So, for example, you may want to design your dialogic event that includes individual exercises, such as a self-journaling exercise. You may want to employ a paired exercise, such as an empathy walk or a paired walk, where two people are sharing their perspectives and points of view to broaden their point of view. You will very likely include circle forms of connectivity where the larger group is coming together to share ideas or learnings for the whole group to hear and respond to. You may want to design into your event a panel exercise where you bring in external experts to participate in a dialogue or discussion, maybe with the intent to broaden everyone's thinking. Another very common form of connectivity in a dialogic-based event is to design breakout sessions or subgroups where a subgroup of people consider a challenge question or discuss amongst themselves about a particular topic to then bring back to the larger group for discussion. Another form of connectivity is to leverage stations. Stations are similar to breakouts in that it represents a subteam or subgroup of people considering a topic and is often used when leveraging the open space method, where multiple topics or items are laid out in a station format for people to consider in a follow-the-energy way. And lastly, you may want to design into your event a cohort type of exercise or form of connectivity, whereby the entire cohort is participating in a particular event or activity, such as a cultural immersion journey or a field trip out into the system. 
So all of these forms of connectivity are very common when designing a dialogic-based event. We often have individual activities, paired activities, circle or plenary type of activities, perhaps panel discussions, breakout groups, station groups, and cohort activities. As you think about designing your innovation sequence, you should consider all forms of these connectivities and how they can serve you in achieving the goals or the end state of the event itself. Another element that makes for a well-formed innovation sequence is to consider the logistics of the dialogic-based event itself. And the first thing to consider is the event location. I often recommend conducting a dialogic-based event off-site and preferably in a serene location that allows for hard thinking to occur. Next, you need to consider your room arrangement. Not only do you need a room large enough to accommodate the crowd that you expect, but you also want to consider the wall space. In dialogic-based events, it's often common to hang things on the walls to use the walls as a working surface to help you achieve your event's goals. As I like to say with the room arrangement, closed spaces often produce closed results and open spaces produce open results. So you want to make sure you have a nice open space with plenty of wall space to accommodate your various working activities. You also need to consider the special requirements of your attendees, such as specific food requirements or accommodations, or perhaps your event requires added security or medical accommodations. Whatever it is, this needs to be a consideration in the design of your event. You need to consider the audiovisual aspects of your event. Will your event be videotaped? And if so, will you need to have a dedicated crew that has the knowledge, skills, and capabilities to do that well? You need to consider the different supplies and resources to support the different activities that you have planned. Oftentimes, you'll need large post-it sheets, post-it notes, markers, pens, things of that nature, just to support the different individual or group activities that you've planned. You need to consider the duration and cadence of your event. Will this just be a one-off event, or will the event span multiple weeks or perhaps months? As you design your event, you need to consider the duration and cadence in the specific activities that will flow from event to event. You also need to consider any extracurricular activities that you might be planning as part of the event or post-event, such as field trips out into the system to engage the edges of the system or scheduling a vision quest for the group. Oftentimes, these types of activities need to be planned far in advance. And last, you need to consider the documentation that will support the event, either in a pre-read format or documenting in process with the event and what you may publish post-event in the form of a report. You need to consider who's doing the documentation and what format the documentation will take. All right, so in bringing it all together then, we design innovation sequences by integrating many parts to form a more important whole. We first consider the end state. We begin with the end in mind. What do we hope to achieve on the back end of facilitating and leading the dialogic-based event? Then we consider the various movements that will comprise the event, diverge movements, converge movements, and emerge movements in between. We consider the various learning journey tools and tactics, including the diagnostic tools that we might employ prior to an event to generate source content to then leverage within the event. Then we consider the different forms of connectivity. What types of connectivity will drive the strategic conversations that we want to have within the event? And lastly, we consider the logistics. We consider event location, our room arrangement, 
special requirements, the audiovisual, supplies and resources, the duration and cadence, extracurricular activities, and the documentation needs. Know this, the integration of the right components in the right sequence is the key to unlocking system transformation. All five elements described here make for a well-formed innovation sequence. All right, now that you understand the different elements that comprise a well-formed innovation sequence, let me walk you through a case study of an event that I designed that highlights or showcases many of the different elements that we just talked about. All right, so the case study was to resolve an intractable or multi-stakeholder issue, and this was a one and a half day event. I planned the design of the event approximately 45 days in advance to harvest stories or the narrative of the current state. We did this by conducting a number of one-on-one -on -one dialogue interviews to gather individual feedback on different perspectives and point of views of the issue. Upon conducting all the interviews, we then created a report for team review during the Dialogic event itself, and we distributed the report approximately one week prior to the event in the form of a pre-read document. This type of activity represents a divergent activity, or divergent movement, and the connection is pairs. Day one of the event represented just an afternoon session, a PM session, and so this represented the point five of the one and a half day event. And we started off by conducting a check-in where we provided an overview of the objectives for the event. We reviewed the agenda for day one, and then we launched into a round of team introductions where each person could share the intention that they were bringing into the event. We did this to make sure that all voices were heard and to make full introductions. The movement for this activity also represented a divergent movement, and the connection was circle. After the check-in, we then initiated a World Cafe event, where we had three rounds of discussion where people were sharing their feedback and insights from the pre-read event that we provided prior to the event. It was an opportunity for people to share stories, understand the current prevailing narratives, the different perspectives and point of views amongst their peers. It was an opportunity for each person to share their individual perspectives on the issue, including what they felt were the root causes of the issue. The movement for this activity was also divergent in nature, and the connection was breakout dialogues. And we concluded day one with the self-reflection exercise where each individual was asked to write an essay from the point of view of being outside the system of what the system looks like. We also asked them to write an essay from the point of view of being inside the system, and in particular, how each person might be contributing to the problem. This reflects an out there versus in here type of reflective activity. The movement of this activity was emergent in nature, and the connection was individual reflection. Day two then represented a full day of activity where we started as we did on day one with a check-in. Each person shared their intentions that they were bringing into day two. Then we did a recap of day one, including highlighting our key learnings and insights. And then we reviewed the agenda for the day. This activity represented more of a divergent movement and the connection type was circle. After the check-in, we initiated a paired walk exercise to get each person to share what was emerging for them individually. We wanted to get each person to share their specific point of view, and to do that with someone who is different from them, different in terms of their thinking, their lived history, and their point of view. This type of activity represented more of an emergent movement, and the connection was pairs. From getting people to share what was emerging from them individually, we then transitioned to what was emerging for the group collectively. 
we had the group discuss what was the emerging opportunities to share stories and understand the future state narratives that were emerging. We were looking for what the shared interests and shared intentions were that were emerging from the group. In short, we were looking to capture the collective wisdom, the collective voice of all involved. This also represented an emergent type of movement in the connection with Circle. Upon learning what was emerging for the group collectively, we then initiated an open space event where people in a follow-the-energy way visited one or more station-based breakouts to consider and discuss different topics or ideas that led to further brainstorming of opportunities and generated, as all open space events do, significant excitement and commitment and engagement. This activity represented more of a convergent movement in the connection type with stations dialogue. And finally, we brought people back together to discuss what the emerging change agenda was for the entire event. We had people align on improvement areas. It was also an opportunity for individual concerns and questions to be addressed by the group in the whole. We did next steps planning, and we identified initiative owners and volunteers to participate in follow-on activities post-event. And finally, we did a checkout. This last activity also represented a convergent movement and the connection type was circle. So as you can see here, there's much involved in designing an innovation sequence from beginning to end. And in this particular case study, it highlights a number of the different diagnostic and dialogic and learning journey tactics that one can employ in designing an innovation sequence. For example, pre-event, we leverage the diagnostic tools of dialogue interviews, narrative harvesting, and conducting a little bit of desk research. During the event, we leveraged multiple dialogic tools, such as the World Cafe, the Circle Method, and Open Space Technology. And we also leveraged a few learning journey tactics, such as the paired walk and self-journaling. So must-have skill number one is to, again, become a master architect with designing innovation sequences, with designing dialogic-based events to help you solve your clients' or your employers' most intractable challenges. All right, so must skill have number two as an OD practitioner is to learn how to leverage complexity to create the conditions for change to occur versus trying to force change or make change happen. So what does this mean exactly? Well, let's use an illustration to drive this concept home. Now, for our purposes, we'll consider that our goal is to solve for a complex adaptive challenge. And if you've ever tried to solve for a complex adaptive challenge, you know that it requires new learning new innovations, and certainly new patterns of behavior. And the winning approach to change these patterns of behavior is to influence and alter the mental models of people in the system, their assumptions, their values, their beliefs. And the way that we do this is that we bring the agents, that is, the system actors, together with their ideas in the form of a dialogic event, leveraging the innovation sequence that we just talked about. We bring agents, ideas, and events together in the form of a dialogic container. In effect, we bring the system into the room. And in doing this, we are intentionally orchestrating very complex conditions that will result in tension, conflict, uncertainty, disruption, and even turbulence. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would we want to do this? This seems like a high-risk affair. And indeed, it is. 
But when we bring agents and their ideas together in the form of a dialogic event, in the form of a dialogic container, it results in emergent adaptive behaviors, behaviors such as new creativity, changed mindsets, newfound curiosity, transformative learning, and new knowledge. The outcome of such behaviors produce a self-organization amongst people. Self-managed teams become empowered to prototype the new via disciplined experiments by launching probes into the system to transform the system. So this is what it means by creating the conditions for change to occur. And we need to understand complexity and leverage complexity as we do this to create the right conditions to catalyze the nonlinear emergence and adaptive behaviors that we're looking for, as it's these adaptive behaviors that actually result in us solving for our complex adaptive challenges. We also need to understand complexity to manage the tension and energetics of the group. As mentioned, when you bring diverse agents together who have remarkably different perspectives and points of views, it will result in tension, in conflict, uncertainty, disruption, and turbulence. But in knowing that, we as practitioners or facilitators are better able or more apt to hold the container to manage the energetics of the group. And lastly, we need to understand complexity to facilitate the outcomes that we're looking for, such as innovation, new learning, changed mindsets, and new generative images or narratives for the system. All right, with this overview, let's dive deeper into how specifically we create the conditions for transformational change to occur, including highlighting the specific mechanisms of transformational change that will help us realize the outcomes that we're looking for. All right, now that we've discussed at a high level what it means to leverage complexity to create the conditions for change to occur, let's dive deeper to understand how specifically we do that. So to create the conditions for transformational change to occur, it starts with us intentionally orchestrating a certain context. And the context itself is actually quite complex. And it begins with orchestrating asymmetrical interactions amongst people. So for example, this would be the equivalent of pairing up frontline staff with senior executives in the same dialogic event to discuss and work through some type of complex adaptive challenge that the organization is facing. In addition to that, we're also looking to make sure that there's a certain interdependence amongst people within that context. So creating the conditions where there's a shared intention, a common goal exists amongst people. We're also wanting to intentionally introduce diversity into the context, and specifically cognitive diversity, that is, people who have remarkably different perspectives and points of views, and demographic diversity. And it's this diversity that oftentimes results in the breakthrough transformations that we're looking for. But we're not done yet. We're also wanting to introduce an adaptive challenge into the context. In fact, adaptive challenges often are the reason for establishing the context. We're also wanting to make sure that there's dynamic connections, exchanges, and interactions occurring amongst people. And we design our innovation sequences to ensure that that occurs. We're also wanting to create a context where there's containment, that a container exists where several diverse others can come together, they can share their points of view and their perspective, and they can learn from others who might have perspectives and points of views that are quite different from their own. Another element of the context that we're looking to intentionally orchestrate is to introduce internal and external constraints. Internal constraints happen by default when you bring a number of diverse people together in a container. 
as I constrain you and you constrain me with each other's thoughts. But there might be external constraints as well, perhaps put on the assembled group from the senior leadership to achieve a particular goal or specific outcome. And lastly, we're wanting to create a context where there's a certain amount of psychological safety that exists. So when you look at the various elements that comprise our context, it is indeed quite complex. And in creating that context, it results in producing a certain climate, a certain environment. And the environment or climate that's created is that there's autocatalytic dynamics. That is, conflict exists, anxiety exists. In addition to that, there's a dissipation of tension. Again, as you bring several diverse others together in a room who have different perspectives and points of view, it's going to result in tension. It's going to result in a dissipation of tension amongst the people. And together, conflict, anxiety, and tension results in a certain amount of disruption and uncertainty and turbulence. Again, you might be thinking that why would we want to create this type of an environment? This sounds uh, like a high-risk affair, but it's this type of environment that actually, as I'll show you in just a moment, leads to the type of adaptive behaviors and transformations that we're looking for within a system. Another element of this climate is direct and indirect feedback loops. And this is occurring because of all the dynamic connections and exchanges and interactions that are occurring amongst the people. And it's in the course of all these exchanges and interactions that we find we've created a climate or an environment that is rapidly changing due to demands that one person puts on the other and vice versa. And what emerges from the context that we've intentionally orchestrated is nonlinear emergence. Conversations are emerging in a nonlinear way. Connections and exchanges and interactions are occurring in a nonlinear way. And as you'll see in just a moment, it's this nonlinear emergence that results in the transformation that we're looking for. And lastly, another element or characteristic of this climate that we've auto-created here is a certain amount of safety, trust, and community. Again, psychological safety is important in these types of events or in these types of situations. Otherwise, you don't get the transformation that you're looking for. The connections, the exchanges, and the interactions become muted when you don't have safety and trust and community. So together then, orchestrating a certain context to generate a certain climate does in fact represent collectively creating the conditions for transformational change to occur. And in creating these conditions, it results or evokes certain new patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior such as creativity and innovation, behaviors of challenging assumptions and changed mindsets, new behaviors reflected by a new aggregation of ideas and transformational learning occurring. New narratives and generative images start to emerge. Self-reflection and personal awareness begins to rise. There's a self-organization that occurs. New alliances are born. New networks are born. And from these new alliances and new networks, correlated action starts to emerge. And most importantly, what we see are New patterns of behavior around information exchange, storytelling, and people being vulnerable. And it's this vulnerability, in fact, that enables or allows breakthroughs to occur. We refer to these patterns of behavior as the mechanisms of transformational change. And so when we orchestrate a certain context to produce a certain climate, to evoke certain patterns, it helps us realize our hoped-for outcomes of shared understanding, a shared intention, aligned actions, and transformed relations amongst all. 
a reformulation of elements occurs that is qualitatively different as new adaptive behaviors emerge. New patterns of seeing, thinking, and acting emerge, which represents, at the end of the day, the adaptive capability of an organization. All right, so this represents the second must-have skill as an OD practitioner, to leverage complexity to create the conditions for transformational change to occur. To the extent that you're knowledgeable and skilled in, in doing this, it will equip you to be more successful in solving for any complex adaptive challenge or intractable challenge that you may encounter in your organization or clients. The third must-have skill as an OD practitioner is to focus on inner work, transforming limiting beliefs and patterns of self and of others. What is required to understand the inner you? Well, the first thing is to acknowledge and understand that for each of us, we have a mental frame for interpreting all the happenings in our life. And the components of your mental frame are the assumptions that you have about life, your beliefs, your values, and your expectations. The inner you also considers your cognitive biases, your behavioral triggers, and lastly, your understanding of the thinking process itself. So there's a need not only for you to understand you, but also to help others understand their inner world as well. And it's important to realize that how you show up when facilitating complex change events and how others show up to participate in those events ultimately determines the extent to which a complex adaptive challenge gets solved or not. Developing such an awareness of the inner you and leveraging such awareness in your daily work is a profoundly difficult habit to establish, but it is vital to create the conditions to solve your organization's most intractable challenges. Having provided an overview on what it means to focus on inner work to transform limiting beliefs and patterns, let's dive deeper into what specifically that means. So it's important to acknowledge that everything that we do in our life begins with how we see or how we approach life, the frames of reference that we use to interpret the events of our life. And the frames of reference are the result of our lived history, our experiences, and our biography generally. However, it is those experiences, our biography, that also constrains us, that results in us approaching life with a rather narrow view. As our frames of reference determine what we attend to and what we therefore dismiss, we refer to our seeing in life as our horizon window or the boundary structure. And outside of that horizon window or outside of that boundary structure represents our cognitive blind spots. So what comprises our frames of reference? Well, as it turns out, our frames of reference are comprised of a number of structures of assumptions, assumptions that are about our biography, assumptions that are cultural-based, assumptions that are educational-based. There's a different set of assumptions regarding our politics, psychological-based assumptions, and assumptions that are socially constructed. All of these assumptions collectively create a web of meaning for us. They create a web of meaning perspectives in how we interpret the events in our life. And it's these structures of assumptions that ultimately produce our habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling. We refer to such things as our habits of mind, or meaning schemes, or habits of expectation, or 
One could say that they reflect our cognitive biases. And these habitual ways of thinking, acting, and feeling articulate as a point of view, such that any experience that we have in life is filtered through this point of view, the point of view reflecting our beliefs, our value judgments, our attitudes, and our feelings, and collectively such things shape and inform our interpretations of every experience that we have in life. In other words, such things help us make meaning in life. And it's our point of view, our beliefs, value judgments, attitudes, and feelings, or our frames of reference that can lead to distorted and prejudiced sense-making, learning, innovation, and genuine change on our part. We can summarize all of this in saying that the range of our seeing in life informs the range of our thinking, acting, and feeling, and we miss a lot in the process. Now, the main challenge for each of us to prevent such distortion, prevent such prejudice, is to suspend our thinking and acting in the moment. But in order to do this effectively, we have to understand the stimulus response challenge. The stimulus response challenge represents a scenario that affects all people. And when I talk about stimulus, I'm talking about something that somebody says that triggers you to do something, or it represents a scenario or a situation that you might be in an event that you're experiencing that also stimulates you to respond in a certain way. And, and the response is simply that. It's how you respond to the stimulus. Now, in between stimulus and response is space, and therein lies the challenge. You see, our specific challenge is that the time between being stimulated and our response is literally a fraction of a second. And it's because the space between stimulus and response is so short that it leads to situations where we reply or respond with distorted or prejudiced thinking and behaving. So the question is, how do we increase the space? How do we widen the space such that we respond with more constructive replies? Well, the answer to this question is, it has to do with our self-awareness, our degree of self-awareness. So to the extent that we are self-aware of the stimulus response challenge, and to the degree that we are aware in the moment that we're encountering a particular stimulus, are we then equipped to, as I mentioned earlier, to suspend our thinking and acting in the moment to allow for a more constructive reply to emerge? This is where most people fall down, myself included. But if we're able to increase our self-awareness and maintain that self-awareness in the moment, not only does the quality of our listening improve, but as I mentioned earlier, our ability to choose a more constructive response improves. So what can we do as OD practitioners to develop and deepen our self-awareness of the stimulus response challenge such that we are more effective in not only responding to others, but also help others be more effective in responding to those around them? Well, the solution is to use a tool called the Ladder of Inference. The Ladder of Inference is a tool that was first developed by Chris Argis and then later made famous by Peter Senge in his book, The Fifth Discipline. And the ladder of inference works bottom-up, where we examine our actual experiences in the moment and assess what the data, in this case observations, are telling us, and trying to do that in as unbiased a way as possible. And the actual experiences represent both verbal expressions, facial expressions, or really any other visual element that we're observing in the moment. As we're examining our actual experiences, we then ask ourselves, what do these observations mean? At this point, we're adding meaning to our observations. This is where our frames of reference kick in to help us 
make meaning of life. We observe ourself, asking what assumptions am I making as I add meaning to what I have observed. Then we observe our conclusions and determine how to act or not to act, as not every stimulus requires an immediate response. The key to all of this is to remain unbiased, objective, as you mentally traverse the ladder from actual experience to actions. All right, so this represents the third must-have skill as an OD practitioner to focus on inner work, transforming limiting beliefs and patterns of both oneself and of others. As mentioned earlier, how you show up when facilitating complex change events and how others show up to participate in those events ultimately determines the extent to which a complex adaptive challenge gets solved or not. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found this content helpful. Please share your comments below, and if you like this video, hit the subscribe button and click the bell to get notified of all future weekly episodes. Also, don't forget to get your free resource. If you're watching on YouTube, click the link below in the description, or you can visit henosispartners.com workshop. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.